Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, welcoming back our host, Michael John Cusick, to the microphone. Hello, Michael. Hey, Brian. Here we are again. Hey, we're uh, continuing our Surfing for God series of podcasts, and today we're in Chapter 9, titled The Invisible Battle. Now, Michael, there's a quote from John Eldridge that sets the tone for the rest of the chapter, and John says, The story of your life is the story of a long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. Now, what is it about this particular quote that stood out to you, Michael? Well, I think it represents the fact that we really live in a world at war, and that because we live in such a rationalist, modern, postmodern world, that it is rarely talked about in non-charismatic or non-Pentecostal circles that there is an influence of evil in our lives and against our hearts. And the goal of evil is to diminish, to kill, to steal, uh, and to destroy, to really take um, any one that uh, any any person and to destroy the glory of God, to destroy beauty, to extinguish all that is good and right, to create distance in relationships. And all of that creates the result of things that we know to be evil, like genocide and sex trafficking and human slavery and racism. Um, but it was Solzhenitsyn that said the line between good and evil is right down the middle of the human heart. So as we start, I want to say that if you just think about your life story, for anyone who's listening, before you think about, um, you know, is there a devil? And I would hope that people listening would have at least a sense of, yes, there there is evil. And as the Bible teaches, it's personal evil. Lucifer was a, a fallen angel from heaven, and that there is a sense of personal attack against us and against our heart. And this is something that we live in, and it's far more real than most of us realize. And I know there's going to be people listening that are like, okay, you know, here comes the the super spiritual part where I've got to, you know, 
fight against the devil and every temptation and every issue is going to be the devil. Back in the 60s, the comedian Flip Wilson, you know, he had this comedy routine where the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And that's not what I'm saying. I want to start out by saying this is not a devil made me do it talk. But if you were to read the chapter in Surfing for God called The Invisible Battle, the focus here, which we'll unpack, is really about deception, Deception about who God is and deception about who we are. Those are the two deceptions, the two big lies that go back to the Garden of Eden. The deception about God is you cannot trust him. He does not have your best interest, and um, he's not good. It was Oswald Chambers who said, all sin is rooted in the suspicion that God is not good. And we have to consider spiritual warfare because it truly wasn't simply Adam and Eve taking the fruit. It was Adam and Eve taking the fruit based on a deception from uh, something that was there that was actually accusing God and trying to deceive those first humans. The second lie about us is that we can be God. When the serpent said to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die, You can unplug your ventilator from the wall and survive. You can walk out of the ICU where you're on life support and you'll be just fine. And that's what this idea of death is. It's that we, that we unplug our life support, which is the attachment to God. And so ever since then, when we turned away from God as that source of support, God was right with us, but What fills that gap are the lies and the promises of evil that say that we can be self-sustaining and self-sufficient. So let's uh, jump right in. Michael, at the the beginning of the chapter, uh, you open with, we live in a world at war, with the emphasis on the word we. Why is that? Well, again, this idea of when humanity turned away from God, and I've said on this program before that I don't like the word the fall because it seems too passive. It feels like a gravitational force. And certainly something was lessened in our humanity like uh, a shiny trophy that was tarnished and dented, but I prefer to call it the turn. And in that turning away from God, it was really believing this set of lies where evil has been unleashed. And as the human heart began to change and turn more in on itself, in self-sufficiency, um, a, a kind of putting ourselves first, that has led to what we see shortly after Genesis 3, where Cain and Abel and the first murder. And then it just plays out where evil begins to dominate. And so where where human beings are not plugged into and attached to and living in this flow of Trinitarian love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that existed there in the Garden of Eden, then it will go on a trajectory uh, that is ultimately about satisfying oneself and left to our own resources that ultimately becomes evil. You know, uh, there's an anonymous quote, I've not been able to track it down, but someone said that no raindrop ever considers itself responsible for the flood. And because of my sex addiction, I was able to say, because of God's mercy, I am one of the raindrops in the flood of sex trafficking. I am one of the raindrops in the human problem of uh, worldwide pornography. 
Every time I harbor hatred in my heart, that is a raindrop in the collective hatred that's in the world. And that's why we're called by Jesus to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That when we, when we live in those kinds of, uh, elements of goodness and God's fruit and his character, that we're actually living in alignment with the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of darkness. The other thing, Brian, is that this world at war is that there's something very particular about our sexuality as humans that we become a very specific kind of target. Um, our sexuality can be intensely pleasurable and joyful. Uh, it can bring children into the world, but it can also reflect something of what God is like and something of the Trinity itself. And so I want to read a quote from Philip Yancey that is in Surfing for God, but I think it puts a context around this conversation with the idea that our sexuality is something that is a particular target for evil to come against, because where there is sexual brokenness, that will have collateral damage in concentric circles that just goes out in all kinds of ways. So Yancey writes, in one sense, we are never more godlike than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable, we risk, we give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel a primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. Two independent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss, but a gain. In some way, quote, a profound mystery, unquote, not even Paul dared explore. This most human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality, in his relations with creation and perhaps with the Trinity itself. So if if our bodies and sex are meant to uh, proclaim our union with God as well as to pleasure and joy and ecstasy, it's no wonder that there would be an enemy, the same enemy in Genesis chapter 3 that's lying to the first humans. It's, it's no wonder that that enemy would want to come and mar and destroy and cause pain through something so beautiful that would represent and allow us to experience something of a taste of this union with God. Michael, I can't help but uh, think about our most recent episode where you talked about uh, the counterfeits. And I, I am in my mind thinking, as you were discussing how our sexuality is under attack, at how Satan is presenting the counterfeit beauty uh, in pornography and the attack on our sexuality. Is, is, is that another weapon of his, to, to, to present a counterfeit Sexuality? Yes, absolutely. And in this episode, this is not the time to parse out the morals of sexuality in terms of uh, gender and same sex or opposite sex. However, I want to say that the biggest issue, first and foremost, is about attachment, that that the Trinity is attached, connected in a way where there is never disconnection and we are made in God's image and psychologists and neurobiologists tell us that we are created for attachment that happens between uh, 
in, in utero and especially in the first four years from zero to four that we need to be seen, soothed, safe, and to develop a secure attachment where we know that we can get our needs met. And so the category that's often not spoken about around sexuality is simply this idea of attachment. And so when people say, you know, what's healthy sexuality? What is godly sexuality? I say, is, is it, is it sexuality that is uh, creating attachments that can be sustained? And, and that's one reason why God created sexuality uh, to be in a, a covenantal relationship. Now, there's also a whole category of sexuality that I have to at least acknowledge here and do a separate episode on outside of the book, but I'll often do a talk called uh, Sex, Soul, and God. And in that talk, I say that our sexuality is more than uh, what set of genitals we have, what chromosomes we have, or what sex we're assigned at birth. And our sexuality is more than what we do sexually with whom in the bedroom or wherever. Our sexuality has, has first and foremost to do with how we uh, live out our personhood as male and female. And there's a way where a person can be celibate and single and still be sexual because our, our, our eros is not simply erotic sexual desire, but it's an energy or a force within us that is meant to come up and out of us and to generate life and goodness and joy. So that's really important before we jump in. Michael, it's about time for us to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Restoring the Soul and the particular chapter that we're looking at today from Surfing for God is the invisible battle. Uh, Michael, after the break, uh, why don't we tackle the question related to the nature of the invisible battle? Absolutely. That sounds good. You're listening to Restoring the Soul. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. We'll be right back. You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless driving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. Welcome back to Restoring the Soul. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, alongside our host, Michael John Cusick. And we are in Chapter 9 of Surfing for God. Uh, the title is The Invisible Battle. Michael, why don't you take us into the nature of this invisible battle that we fight? Yeah, this is so important because when people hear the word spiritual warfare, it conjures up, you know, images of of demons and lots of phrases that are misused like demon possession and things like that. And without being dramatic, over the years, as I've done inner healing and worked in church ministry context, I have prayed with people in uh, ministry groups and seen literal deliverance from the demonic. But for our purposes, for the purposes of recovery, for the purposes of getting free, I really want to focus on the category of deception. Uh, Satan is called the father of lies. He is a deceiver, and he has been since the beginning. Scripture tells us Revelation 12 calls uh, evil the accuser. 
and uh, in the King James, it says the accuser of the brethren. In the New Living Translation, it says that we have an accuser that hurls insults at us all day long. And so it's, it's the lies that we have been told and the lies that we have come to believe that become strongholds. And in Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, don't go to bed angry lest you give the devil a foothold. A foothold, if you think of it, is like a door that has a lock on it to a room, and the door is unlocked, and then we turn the handle and we open it so that, you know, the door is not really closed all the way, but it's not really open. That's a foothold that through certain kinds of sins and in the context of Paul saying, you know, if you go to bed angry toward one another, your heart is vulnerable to lies. For example, this is, you know, happened to me. So if Julianne and I go to bed angry, you know, I fall asleep thinking, you know, she's really not a safe person, or I'm never going to be loved the way that I want to be, or she just doesn't understand me. And then I sleep for eight hours and one or two things will happen. I'll wake up and I will have forgotten about it, but that little nick, like a like a pocket knife nick in my heart is there. Or I'm going to wake up thinking uh, she can't be trusted, she doesn't love me, and I'll never be understood. And so then it kind of gains a power, and it's like there's a seed that has been germinated there. So that's a foothold. But then Scripture also uses the word in the Old and New Testament, stronghold. And in Psalm 27, it says, the Lord is my stronghold, of whom shall I be afraid? And a stronghold is really a fortress, uh, a place to defend, a place to gain ground, and a place out of which we battle an enemy. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, there's this passage that talks about strongholds, and it says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. And then depending on what translation people are reading, it will say every argument and pretense, or another one says vain imagination. But in the modern translations, it says, and what it really means is that we can demolish strongholds, comma, beliefs and lies that stand in the way of knowing God. And then there's a comma, and it says, and so we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So when I was in my addiction, I would hear and read, well, you just need to take your thoughts captives. And there's several books out there today that say that the whole approach to overcoming pornography or sexual sin or any addiction is just to take your thoughts captive. But I would I would bet the farm on the fact that listeners are saying, yeah, I've tried that, and it doesn't work. And here's why. Because if you try to take something or someone captive without actually demolishing the fortress out of which this attack is coming, then it's you're going to take, you know, one person captive, so to speak, and then there's a thousand more back in the fortress. And so I use the analogy in Surfing for God uh, of the Osama bin Laden raid. Uh, the book was written just after that happened. And so the uh, Navy SEALs flew from Afghanistan into the sovereign airspace of Pakistan, uh, which is highly, highly unusual and highly against all international norms. In the middle of the night, the helicopters landed, the Navy SEALs got out, and they did not just go to the door and knock on the door. 
and say, oh, hi, Mrs. Bin Laden, well, we'd like to talk to your husband. Uh, that would have been foolish. But what they did was under the dark of night, they they basically, you know, beat down the door. They went in. If I recall, they had to shoot one person on the first floor, and then they went up the stairs and they saw Bin Laden and he picked up a gun and they they killed him. They collected all of the computers, anything that looked like information, anything with any fingerprint of what might have been related to 9-11, and they took it and then they blew up the building. They commandeered and they demolished that stronghold, that fortress where Osama bin Laden was. And then they didn't have to worry about people returning to that spot. In the same way, we have to demolish the lies and beliefs, which are the strongholds, that stand in the way of knowing God's mercy and grace and the truth of who he is and the truth of who we are. So going back over and over to this idea of the original deception, you can't trust God, which is a lie, and you can be God. You can survive apart from being plugged into and connected to the source of life, which is also a lie. And so there are you know, probably an infinite number of lies and beliefs that people have related to our story, but there are major themes. And so in the shame and core beliefs chapter, and we did an episode on that a while back, uh, it's basically the four big ones out of which all the others flow. Uh, I'm, I'm basically a bad or unworthy person. I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I'm flawed. I'm somehow deficient, inadequate. I'm unlovable. The second flows from that, that nobody would love me as I really am. Therefore, I have to create a false self and either be better than I am, bigger than I am, or I've got to dial down and be smaller than I am. The third need, uh, core belief is that I can't get my needs met by depending on others. So I have to be self-sufficient. And then the fourth core belief is there's something, there's some uh, behavior, there's some substance that I have to turn to to meet my deepest needs for attention and affection, affirmation and acceptance. So these core lies, and I'll just give an example of uh, the, the core lies that I was walking around with. Uh, one was inside because of the sexual abuse that I experienced when I was very, very young and throughout my childhood, the core lie was I am dirty and I am disgusting. And that was out of that first core lie that nobody, uh, I'm, I'm basically bad and second one that nobody would love me as I really am. Um, another, another one that I don't ever finish things. I go seven-tenths of the way, and I never finish things. And so when I wrote Surfing for God, I overcame a huge lie in that I actually was able to finish something. I would drop out of this and that. I would sign up for a marathon and, and not finish the training. And that's just a part of my story that goes deep, deep inside of me. Another core belief is um, you will never live the kind of life that you want to live because you have no self-control. And that one goes way back. There are lies that people with sexual addictions have around, um, I will always struggle, I will never be free. God will never forgive you. He forgives others, but not you. Um, you should hate yourself. Um, shame is your friend. Things like that. And these become rooted inside of us. And I believe there's now growing evidence that these 
uh, beliefs are not just thoughts that we have, but they're actually woven into our nervous system and that they are neurobiologically grounded in us. And therefore, they can't just cognitively change, but they have to be experientially changed. And as I'll talk about in a minute, there's, I don't like the word formula, but there are a series of steps that we can take in prayer to kind of put a flag in the ground and to demolish the stronghold so that then we can begin to take thoughts, thoughts captive. Um, I was at a speaking engagement just before quarantine and I did what I think is probably one of the better talks I've given in my life. And it was out of content on surfing for God. And afterwards, I felt this wave of shame come over me. And I know enough about this and I know how shame plays out where I just kind of smiled because it wasn't that I had screwed up or lost my place in my notes. It's that I felt so free and so powerful and so in the zone that I, I felt this this accusation in this, literally this voice in my head that said, you know, you shouldn't be that free and you shouldn't play and have fun like that because that's dangerous to put your true heart out there. And so I had to walk through this process that I, I want to model for people. But it really is an accusation that comes against us from the outside or a deception that rises up on the inside, and we don't have to live this way for the rest of our lives. So we're literally, you know, in this war and under attack at all times. Michael, you describe practices that we can engage in that allow us to stand strong against the attack. Could you take a few moments as we wrap up uh, today's episode, what the most important practices are? Yeah, it's it's one of the few places where people will find me having anything that looks like a formula, and it is three words, announce, renounce, and pronounce. And this is a, a simple prayer that people can do, but it's to identify the lies that you believe. And so if you're working with a counselor or therapist, this is something that you can undertake. These lies are generally related to shame. They're generally related to our wounds. Uh, another lie that I believed and I've had to do battle with is it is wrong and foolish to be vulnerable. It's wrong and foolish to let anyone see my heart. And so I've had people literally write out 50 lies or write out one and to pray through them in this fashion. And just one more caveat for those who may be skeptical or saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this or I don't believe this. In the Catholic Church, in the Episcopal and Anglican Church, and in the Lutheran churches, and I'm not sure about Methodism or some of the others, I've even seen this in uh, Protestant uh, Presbyterian churches in, in my former church, when someone is baptized, whether it's infant baptism or adult baptism, and we won't go into that right now, there is a call and response. And so the person who's baptized, if they're an adult, there's something that says, do you reject and renounce the works of the devil? And the person being baptized says, yes, I do. If it's an infant or a child, the congregation is asked those questions, and the congregation stands in as a spiritual surrogate with the idea that it's the community that brings that child to salvation. And 
the minister will ask the congregation, on behalf of this child, do you uh, renounce and reject the works of the devil? And they say, I do. So this goes back in church history all the way to the early church. And I have a friend that uh, was a missionary in Indonesia for many, many years. And uh, in the part of Indonesia where he lived, it was not only Islam, but it was a a very syncretic, polytheistic part of the country. And when a person came to Christ, they would baptize them, and they would do a deliverance at the very same time. Mm-hmm. And people would experience very significant freedom. And that's in a culture where uh, the demonic and idols, you know, can be purchased in the drugstore. And so here's what this looks like. Announce, renounce, and pronouns. To announce is to simply say, God, Jesus, here is the lie that I have believed. And the reason why I say announce instead of confess is because for people who are addicted and um, who have a thousand times confessed again and again and again, and they have not felt forgiven, it's usually because that is shame. And so I think that this is more about truth-telling and speaking out loud the lie that is not necessarily a sin, because if it's something that you've been told and you never realized it was a lie, it's just speaking it out. So I'll use the example of vulnerability. Jesus, I announce that I have believed a lie, that vulnerability is bad. I have I announce that I have believed a lie, that vulnerability is foolish and will get me hurt, and that I cannot be vulnerable to others. That would be the announce. The renounce is simply to break allegiance. Uh, my friends Tony and Vivi Lemos, who have actually been on the podcast uh, right after they became U.S. citizens from Guatemala, I share the story that at their ceremony, there were about 60 different people becoming citizens and over 30 nations represented. And the very first thing you have to do to become a U.S. citizen is standing in front of all of the witnesses. You raise your right hand, and I will use them as an example. I, Tony, hereby renounce my citizenship, my allegiance, my fidelity to my country, to any prince, potentate, or authority. And I hereby pledge my allegiance to the United States of America. And I've often thought that if you have to renounce your fidelity and allegiance in your heart to your country of origin, and you have to pledge allegiance to the United States, that this must be what the spiritual corollary is. And so renouncing is saying, Jesus, I have believed this lie that vulnerability is to be avoided and that I can't be vulnerable. And I renounce this. I am breaking my allegiance, my fidelity to it, all that it has done for me. It has at times kept me safe, but it's also kept my heart impenetrable. It has kept me uh, away from intimate relationships and from receiving the love that you would want to give through people that have loved me. And it's kept me from being vulnerable from you. And I renounce that. There's another category along with renunciation, and that is a breaking of an agreement. To confess is to agree with God, and to renounce is to disagree with evil. 
to renounce is to disagree with evil. And so I will often have people pray, and I would do this myself, um, Jesus, I renounce this lie, and I break agreement with it. I am disagreeing with what evil has told me, that I cannot be vulnerable, and that's foolish. And Jesus, I am agreeing with you, the picture of vulnerability, the one that invites me to be childlike and to trust. And then you can go through as many lies as you want, and that renunciation is what it calls in Second Corinthians 10, demolishing the stronghold. And so I'll, I'll announce, I'll renounce, and then I'll say, and so Jesus, in the authority and power of your name, I demolish this particular stronghold, and I now ask you to pronounce your truth to me. And so you can sit in silence. There might be a scripture that immediately comes up. You might hear the voice of Jesus whispering uh, words that are specific and intimate to you. But it's really a time of receiving. And the point here is not to promise or to commit or to do some kind of heroic, I will never believe this again. But there's a wonderful prayer in Psalm 8611, and it says, Teach me your ways, Lord. Give me an undivided heart that I would walk in your truth. And it's always in the divided or the broken heart where the lie comes onto the wound or into our vulnerability. And so this sounds very, very simple, almost formulaic. But if people um, want to know more, they can go to the chapter on the invisible battle. And it can become just a spiritual practice that when we're still, we can ask God to search us, to know our heart, to show us our anxious ways, any path of pain that we're walking on, and then to lead us in his way everlasting, as Psalm 139 tells us. And Brian, on the next episode, we talked about this ahead of time, but I want to, in our next episode, continue this idea of the invisible battle by simply reading through and praying for our listeners this prayer for sexual healing that John Eldridge has written at his ministry, Wild at Heart, and he allowed me to include that in Surfing for God. And I think that uh, many people will find that helpful and experience new levels of freedom through it. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.